Today's Swallow Your Pride guest is Dan Weinstein. Dan is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and is an incredibly intelligent and very well-spoken SLP from the Philadelphia area. Actually, at the time of this recording, he was the speech pathology supervisor at the Department of Rehabilitative Services at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, but since then, he's moved back to the East Coast because he wants to live closer to me. And he'll be starting his new position shortly as the Chief of Speech and Audiology Services at the Philadelphia VA Medical Center. Dan has served as a clinical supervisor for several years, and in his experience, he has developed a way of explaining very difficult topics for SLPs in a very simple and eloquent manner. If I could go back and do my externships or CF again, I would pick Dan in a heartbeat. He cares so much about educating SLPs and helping them to learn the medical reasoning and research behind everything we do. In this episode, we discuss palliative care in both the acute care and skilled nursing settings. We dispel some myths about feeding tubes, thickened liquids, and how best to treat our end-of-life patients with dysphagia. Dan also touches on esophageal dysphagia and some things we should and shouldn't do with treating that. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll get right into the podcast in just a minute. But, you know, the whole point of doing this podcast is to be able to bring you some extremely valuable information that doesn't cost you a darn thing that you can just mindlessly listen to on your commute or while you're at the gym or making dinner. But some of you also might realize that you do want more information and you would like to get to use for it. So I've partnered with MedBridge for the entire month of September to bring you an amazing deal on their membership CEU packages. So I know it's getting towards the end of the year. You're like, oh crap, I need to catch up. I need to get some CEUs. We've got you covered. So I know there's a few different membership sites out there. Why did I decide to partner with MedBridge? No brainer. They have so many great resources all in one spot. There's webinars and lectures from Dr. Yanessa Humbert, Dr. Kate Hutchison, Dr. Katrina Steele, Dr. Marty Brodsky, Dr. Stephanie Daniels, Dr. Crary, Dr. Carnaby, Dr. Grower, Dr. Arvidson on pediatric feeding and swallowing. So many awesome rock stars in our field. So whether you just need to brush up on the basics of swallowing physiology, or you want to learn more about dysphagia and acute care or stroke or more about video fluoroscopy or rehabilitation treatment techniques. Uh, I could go on. You get the point. But you have access to all of these with a MedBridge membership. So the regular price for this membership is $320. But MedBridge has sweetened the deal for Swallow Your Pride listeners for the month of September. And they are upgrading everyone to their premium membership, which includes patient handouts and videos, a mobile app, live webinars, and more. So all of that for 95 bucks. So unlimited access to hundreds of CEUs for 95 bucks. So go to medbridgeeducation.com, click on speech language pathology, sign up for the SLP education plan and enter promo code SYP at checkout. So SYP for swallow your pride, enter promo code SYP and you'll be automatically upgraded to that premium membership, but only for the price of 95 bucks. So super steal, get on that. Now we'll get on with the show. Just wanted to remind you that the MedBridge CEU offer ends on September 30th. So for $95, you'll get that free upgrade to the premium package using promo code SYP at checkout. Um, But that special is only good till September 30th. But I've been getting a million questions about this. Just wanted to clarify. Access to the membership site is good for one full calendar year from the day that you purchase the package. If you wait till September 30th to purchase it, you get it till September 30th, 2018. So just that lower price, that $95 rate is only being offered till September 30th. But the membership site access is good for an entire year. So just wanted to remind you of that. Okay. You guys, first of all, are so awesome. Thank you so much for all of your support with this podcast. Again, I know I keep saying it, but I'm totally blown away by the support. I've had so many cool people email me, reaching out, wanting me to touch on different topics, and 
that just makes my life so much easier. So I don't have to plan anything because you guys keep coming to me with guests and what I should talk about. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So our iTunes review of the week comes from poor speech. It's titled very informative and entertaining. Where was this almost 30 years ago when I was a CF with one month of dysphagia coursework being supervised by SLPs who had never practiced in the field of dysphagia? I love how evidence-based and plain-spoken the information is in these interviews. I've learned something new with each episode and look forward to more. The references provided are a great addition to my arsenal of tools that I need to advocate for my patients you so much poor speech i just love reviews like that i love that after 30 years you're still learning something new i know i still have so much to learn too and that's the whole point of this podcast i just want everyone to keep an open mind and keep trying to learn new things um and just to address uh, the references in the show notes i've gotten a few emails people can't find the show notes if you go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom Don't worry, I'm going to make this more user-friendly soon when I get a free minute here, but scroll all the way down to the bottom, and then you'll find the episode you're looking for, and there's a gigantic red button that says download the show notes for this episode. So that's what you have to do. Hope that clears that up for you. And then also, I want to remind you to enter the giveaway for the launch of this podcast. We've had some awesome people put together some giveaways for us. So one lucky winner will actually win a $500 gift card to Northern Speech Services. That's the coolest thing ever. Thanks so much, Northern. They have so many awesome courses on their site. MBSIMP, anyone? Um, also thank you so much to Dr. Ianessa Humber and Rinky Verandani Desai with Dysphagia Grand Rounds. Two lucky winners will be receiving a one-year membership to their Dysphagia Grand Round site. So that's 1.4 CEUs. That's $175 value. And lastly, one lucky winner will also receive that MedBridge Premium subscription that we were talking about earlier. So there's going to be four winners in this giveaway. I'm going to pick the winner on September 29th. To enter, what you have to do is go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com, enter your name and email. Step one, go to iTunes and subscribe. Step three, go to iTunes and leave a review. That is how we keep on the air here, okay? So do those three steps. When you leave a review on iTunes, make sure you leave your email handle or your name so I can identify you when I try to email you that you are the winner. So, all right. Thank you so much, you guys. Hi, Dan. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Oh, good. Thank you so much for doing this for me. Absolutely. All right. Well, tell the people who you are. So I'm Dan Weinstein. I'm the Supervisor of Speech Pathology at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. Um, I've been practicing for since uh, 2010, originally from Philadelphia, and uh, moved from... Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, where I've been for the past year and a half. Awesome. And what do you do there? At UCSF, I supervise clinical operations in speech pathology in the inpatient side at the Parnassus Heights campus. So in addition to seeing patients myself, I act as um, a clinical mentor to the rest of the staff and um, have supervisory responsibilities as well. Awesome. Well, and I think that's like when I first really started like listening and like loving what you had to say about things because you just have a really nice way of putting things. So I think that's when I think that's when I reached out to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, you said that so nice and like tactfully. But I guess that's kind of just the skills that you gain as you get more into clinical mentoring and, you know, supervising others. Yeah, and there are skills that I picked up along the way working in different places, and that's something that I encourage, you know, even if you have a full-time position, if you pick up some per diem hours at other places just to see different styles, different ways of doing things, different approaches, different medically complex patients that different hospitals may provide you with that experience, I definitely encourage that. And then you kind of develop your own way. Yeah, and I think also just your way of talking with other people in our profession, too. I think another time I reached out to you was kind of how to approach another SLP. And that's really not what this whole topic is going to be about tonight, but I'm just going to throw this in there anyways. And I was just kind of bouncing ideas off you about, you know, maybe, well, if you word it like, help me understand why, or can you educate me on this? So it's just asking the other person in kind of a non-confrontational way. 
Yeah, I think coming from, you know, originally doing my clinical fellowship in one place and, and not having uh, much exposure to any other settings besides the brief rotations that we do in graduate school, you think that that one place is the be-all, end-all. And once you start getting exposed to all these other settings, you realize, wow, there are other ways to do things. So I'm coming from a place where I was once like, oh, I know everything there is to know. And so I can empathize with those people who just have been doing it the same way all this time. So I I come from a place of understanding and try to understand where they're at so I can help bridge the gap between what they don't know, what they think they know, and what they have no idea that they don't even know. Right. You don't know what you don't know till you know you didn't know it. Exactly. All right. Well, so the point of this podcast is... I think you had just gotten finished with presenting to a group of medical directors at your setting. Is that right? And that's kind of where this all stemmed from. Um, I recently presented to the internal medicine group, which included medical students and residents. And just talking about NPO. Yes. Well, amongst other things, uh, I, I focus on dysphagia because I am a, a board-certified uh, swallowing specialist. So that was kind of the brunt of my talk. And one topic that they had a lot of questions about and something that I'm passionate about is our approach to managing an elderly patient who has advanced cognitive decline, where sometimes there is no, quote, safest diet, where it's not black and white. And it really takes some something more than just a, you know, pass fail or plus or minus answer. One of the things I'm passionate about is palliative care, because this takes more than just being able to do a bedside assessment or a modified barium swallow or fees, but it's understanding the patient, understanding their patient's wishes, understanding the family and their wishes and uh, the patient's medical history and trajectory. Um, sometimes we are the ones who can identify when a patient may benefit from palliative care. And, you know, especially in the United States, I think that we are not so equipped to have those discussions. I believe that we have one of the highest feeding tube rates uh, compared with other countries and in older patients with advanced with advanced dementia, because I think that we have such good medicine here. People always think that there's some sort of treatment or even a cure for things, but oftentimes, especially with um, advanced dementia, we know it's a progressive disease and that swallowing problems will ultimately be fatal. And so we have to understand that. We have to realize that so that when we get consulted for these patients who potentially come in with respiratory complications associated with aspiration, that we know what we're doing with these patients and that we know how to have these conversations. And it's not something that really a lot of graduate classes focus on, focus on and it's not really something that the medical students or residents have a lot of experience with. So we really need to work together collaboratively to come up with a good plan for each individual patient. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I hate to always kind of bash the dysphagia grad programs. I would, I have so much pity on those (laughs) instructors because there is so much to cover these days. It's so, it's so hard to cover everything, but I think that is, you know, especially it's, I think it's unique that, a lot of the a lot of us work in skilled nursing setting, but you work in acute care, and there's still so much overlap in this palliative care, you know, realm, which no one really has much experience with. And you know, we're just kind of programmed in the older in the olden days. But <laughs> you keep trying thicker, thicker, thicker liquids, and then you all of a sudden go to a feeding tube. And it's like the more research we're doing, the more evidence we're realizing is that is so far from what we should be doing with our patients. And now we're finally kind of pulling back out of the weeds and realizing there is a lot more to the puzzle. Right. And, you know, with our background as speech pathologists and understanding cognition and communication, we can use that information in the assessment of swallowing disorders and help with prognostication and help patients and their loved ones make appropriate decisions in challenging situations. So I feel like our role as speech-language pathologists in in palliative care is mostly evaluative. We look at communication and swallowing in patients who have advanced dementia. Even if cognition is not the primary concern, we still look at that to help influence our decision-making and our recommendations. Tell me about your more interdisciplinary kind of family approach. So you you do your eval, you have kind of your assumptions where you think this is going to go, but 
how do you broach the family or how do you broach the doctor about what you're thinking? Well, of course, every patient is different. And I don't want to say that there is a one way to approach these situations because there's not. So I'd say the way to approach it is is in individual, right? You have to understand what what the patient is thinking or what their family member is thinking and where the where the doctors think that the patient's going medically. So if I'm evaluating a patient and I do a clinical assessment, I might see a number of things if we're if we're talking about you know advanced dementia or cognitive decline so if i'm seeing the typical symptoms of advanced dementia like reduced appetite um, orally defensive where they're just not taking food or liquid the first thing i would want to know is how long has this been going on if it's if it's acute if it's something new then you might consider hey is the patient infected do they have a pneumonia do they have a uti is something else going on that's cause a rapid progression of their dysphagia or dementia symptoms that's, that are manifesting themselves as, as dysphagia, right? So that's the first thing, because you don't want to approach a patient who was pretty functional before their hospitalization as someone who is up there in the later stages of dementia, this is a palliative care case, because that's not always right. true. So you definitely want to get some background about what the patient was like before they came into the hospital. At that point, right. if it is an acute thing, then your recommendation might be, okay, let's wait and see. Have the patient um, undergo treatment with antibiotics for their infection and follow up with them at bedside, right? So the, the timing of, a, of an instrumental examination, as we know, is so important here because you, in this case, you probably wouldn't want to go ahead and say, oh, let's bring the patient downstairs and do a modified bearing swallow. No, you'd probably wait for the infection to resolve, see clinically if the patient is more accepting of boluses, and go from there. But then you're going to have the patients who have history of progressive decline, and there's no infection, or they've had repeated aspiration pneumonias, for example. The patient's accepting of the bolus, but they might be holding it in their mouth. They might be showing overt signs of aspiration at bedside. That's where I want to get a little bit more information from the family member about how long has this been going on? What's going on at home? What are they doing at home? Is the patient able to feed themselves? All of these things. And if I can find that, uh, get the patient to, if I, if I think that the patient is reasonably as close to baseline as possible, then you want to consider a modified barium swallow or a fees. Sometimes we don't even get there because sometimes it just doesn't make a difference. In the family's mind, they sometimes get where things are going. They understand that they want comfort to guide the goals of care. Those are the easy cases where it's, you know, the patient's in with their third or fourth pneumonia or they're, um, they've, complete, they've lost, you know, a lot of weight. There's no, they have no desire, no questions about feeding tubes. And the patient gets discharged to hospice on the diet that's most comfortable for them, if they're if they're amenable to, to taking something by mouth. But sometimes they need us to intervene, find objectively what's going on with the swallowing, and then we can use that information to help guide the goals of care. So if there's a patient who has recurrent pneumonias, and we assume that it's aspiration pneumonia, and their history sounds like it's probably aspiration pneumonia, and we do a modified barium swallow or seize, and we find that, yes, indeed, the patient is aspirating. They're not stimulable for any strategies and might be aspirating all consistencies. Um, that's when we can use that objective data to explain to the, to the patient's family, hey, this is what's going on. I think sometimes we just get such tunnel vision in that thinking that we have to fix the problem. Like we have to figure out what's going on and we have to fix it. We have to, there's all this talk now that, you know, all we have to do is rehab the swallow and rehab the swallow. But sometimes there are these special cases where that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And we have to know when it's time to talk with the family and, and be honest and use our, you know, counseling skills about where this is going. And I just, I think so many times, especially in skilled nursing setting, we just write down a diet and that's it. You know, and there's there's so much more that goes into it than just saying, oh, they're just end-stage dementia. We'll just put them on puree and honey and they'll be safest on that. And, and it's not. There's so many more counseling skills that go into that as well. And often I've had conversations with other speech pathologists, physicians about, well, why do a modified barium swallow or a fees? And I say, well, let's let's see if we're treating what's actually going on. You know, if there's no report of 
you know, let's say coughing, for instance, at home with PO, but they're diagnosing aspiration pneumonia. Or I say, oh, well, the patient should be on hospice, you know, honey thick liquid puree. Why don't we do a modified barium swallow if the patient is, you know, able to take something by mouth? And I'll give you an example of why that's so important. I had a patient who um, was seen at a prior hospital uh, or seen at another hospital previously and was made NPO. The, had advanced dementia. The daughter told me that she ended up getting a, a feeding tube and that she was silently aspirating. They subsequently removed the feeding tube and the patient was eating and drinking but was admitted with aspiration pneumonia. Um, the patient was put on a puree, a puree diet and honey thick liquid. I went to see the patient at bedside. Cognitively, they were alert, not oriented, but they were able to take PO. And, you know, no overt signs of aspiration seemed comfortable with all consistencies from thin liquid to solid. So I said, well, why don't we do a modified barium swallow and actually see what's going on? And the patient came down to fluoro, participated adequately, and they had a perfectly normal oropharyngeal swallow. When we went to scan the esophagus, they had a large standing column of barium in their esophagus probably, you know, pretty close to the pharynx. So what was more likely the case was that this patient was getting aspiration pneumonia from reflux. So if you think about options for this patient, would you want them to be on a thick liquid that moves more slowly in the esophagus that's already not working? Or would you rather them be on thin liquid that's going to move a lot a lot better, a lot more easily through the esophagus. Furthermore, the patient was also admitted with a UTI. Evidence suggests that honey thick liquid or thickened liquids can lead to dehydration, uh, which can lead to UTI, which can lead to, you know, worsening of dementia symptoms, worsening of dysphagia, and the cycle continues. So that's why it's so important to figure out exactly what's going on with the swallow so that you're just not making blind recommendations of thick liquid that might actually be somewhat contraindicated. Yeah, absolutely. I had a, a fees today, actually, and you could just tell that it was a younger clinician and she, they had put the, I think he had been on nectar thick and they downgraded him. She kind of was peer pressured by the nurses to put him down to honey thick. And this facility, she's brand new to this facility and they, that's, you know, just been their protocol. You just keep downgrading, keep downgrading, keep downgrading. And as soon as I did the, the medical history, he had just every esophageal condition um you know i kind of knew what we were going to find and even on the fees you could just tell he was not having good ues clearance uh you could just tell the thick liquid was just sitting right there and just very slowly going down so i just was explaining that to her as we were going and i said you know these are the cases where thick thickened liquids are only harming him right and then we got to the thin and it went right down mm-hmm. and she's like i've just never seen anything like this before i'm like i you know i know <laughs> That's why I want to do these podcasts so people understand that there's pros and cons to everything we do. And and yes, sometimes thickened liquids are the answer, but sometimes they're not. And if I could just share some information, because I don't want people to think that this is just the the Dan way of practicing or the Teresa way of practicing. I, I just to share some some sources, you know, according to the Alzheimer's Association, and this is public knowledge if you Google it. The severe dementia frequently causes such complications as immobility, swallowing disorders, and malnutrition. These complications can significantly increase the risk of developing pneumonia, which has been found in several studies to be the most commonly identified cause of death among elderly people with Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. So to your point previously about how we can't fix things all the time, it's clearly documented that dysphagia and aspiration and pneumonia can be ultimately, you know, can lead to the demise of people who have uh, end-stage dementia. So let's talk about why in this population we really should try to avoid G-tubes as much as possible. Okay. Well, so let's talk about what feeding tubes are good for. So, you know, most people think, right, most, the most common reasons for wanting enteral feeding, according to swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2015, are to prevent aspiration pneumonia and prolong life. So 67% of people thought that they wanted a feeding tube to prevent aspiration pneumonia, and 84% thought it would prolong life, right? But we know from research that this is not true. They are good for patients who've had an acute stroke, who temporarily might not be able to gain enough calories and nutrition by oral feedings alone, right? So they might need some supplemental nutrition as they undergo rehabilitation. Same thing with patients who have had a neck cancer who are undergoing treatment who might not be able to take food safely or at all by mouth. So those two, great. End-stage dementia, on the other hand, not great. 
End-stage advanced dementia and terminal illness are often characterized by anorexia cachexia syndrome, where the generalized breakdown of homeostatic mechanisms results in decline, even when provided with adequate calories and nutrients. That's from the same source. So, Let's say that again. Say it slower. Sure. So I'll summarize it. So even when, the, just looking at the numbers, right, the total number of calories and nutrients are being pumped into you, into a person who has advanced dementia, there still is not a uh, nutritional benefit. So what about the SLPs that are recommending the appetite stimulants for this population? I want to know, first of all, if that's our role in the first place. Right. 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 Is, this, is it really our role to, to recommend appetite stimulants? I realize that nutrition and swallow function can go hand in hand, but our goal is to evaluate and treat oropharyngeal swallow function. And we need to minimize negative outcomes associated with aspiration and dysphagia, you know, such as malnutrition. I don't know if it's our role to be suggesting appetite stimulants. What do you think about that? I completely agree with you. I don't think it is. And I feel like sometimes family members will say things to me. Um, you know, what do you think? Should we have an, you know, I guess it's probably kind of the family members that are more in denial of the progression of the disease. Um, do you think we should order an appetite stimulant? You know, some of the doctors or the nurses said that might be the way to go. And I usually just try to defer that to the registered dietitian at that point because I, I don't know what else they've got going on. You know, I don't know how many other calories or supplements or other things that they're already trying to either pump into them or not pump into them. And I think that's when this whole communication with everybody piece is so critical is get it, is discussing it with the patient and with the family and what these people even want. You know, does does this person even care to have an appetite to prolong their life? Or are they happy and satisfied with the quality of their life right then? So I think that's when I kind of just went off on a tangent, but I don't care. But Well, no, I mean, you're, 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 <laughs> talking, whole... about, you're talking about indication for needing a feeding tube, right? And Yeah, yeah. And this comes up a lot where a patient's family member will say, well, I just, I can't not feed them, you know? And I, I took an online course, I believe it was through ASHA on dysphagia and older adults. And if I think it's still available or if it is available, I would definitely recommend you take it. Um, and they talked about withholding artificial nutrition and they synthesized several articles and they found that 97% of dying patients who stopped eating experienced no hunger or hunger only initially. They found that terminal anorexia may benefit dying patients by inducing ketosis and endorphin release, which artificial feeding may reverse. Terminal anorexia and cachexia appear to be due in part to inflammatory cytokines and other transferable humoral factors. And they also found that even prolonged tube feeding with adequate formula, as I said before, fails to improve nutritional parameters in chronically ill nursing home patients. So, we need to know this information so we can relay it to the patient's family members so that we can we have an answer for that, right? So often yep. anorexia is associated with advanced dementia. And what you do by introducing tube feeding, that kind of negates that, right? So so as an indication for a feeding tube in in someone who's older with advanced dementia. Right? If the goal is yep. to improve nutrition, multiple studies found that it doesn't, right? So let, let's talk about another reason that someone might want a feeding tube, right? So one of them was to prolong life, and that's not true, as the research has found. The other is to, present, to prevent aspiration pneumonia. The scientific evidence suggests that inserting a feeding tube might actually increase the risk of developing pneumonia, interestingly, because number one, the patient still is going to swallow their secretions. And right. if they're not swallowing, if they're NPO and they're not continuously swallowing, then their secretions are just going to build up. Bacteria is going to form in their mouth. They're going to continue to aspirate their saliva, which is now built up in their mouth with increased bacteria, which increases the risk of developing pneumonia. Not to mention when you insert a tube and pump in artificial formula, that might increase the risk of reflux of that formula. And I've seen it before where a patient was an older patient was NPO, had an NG tube placed, and they suddenly de uh, developed this wet, gurgly vocal quality. I did a fees, and sure enough, 
there was brown tube feed formula in the airway. Strike two on feeding tubes. They don't prolong life, right? right and they right, don't right. prevent aspiration pneumonia. Right. So let's talk about those who might not be in the acute setting, but who might be in skilled nursing facilities or long-term care facilities where many of their patients might have already had feeding tubes placed. The first thing I would want to know if I were in that setting would be, why was that feeding tube placed in the first place? Perhaps the patient was not doing great in the hospital. They were assessed by the speech pathologist. They said, oh, the patient is not safe for anything. Make the patient NPO, give them a feeding tube, kick him out, get them to rehab. And... I understand why that happens, right? The hospital is not the best place for an older person to be. You know, they're exposed to a lot of bacteria, increased risk of developing infection. So the doctors want to get the patient out of there as fast as possible. A skilled nursing facility will not take a patient, typically, who doesn't have a way of getting nutrition. So these patients end up in skilled nursing facilities. So either by way of rehabilitation or spontaneous recovery, the patient might get better. And that is something that speech pathologists right. in those facilities need to take into consideration. If the patient that's in front of them is not the patient that was described in the notes in the hospital or by a family member about how they were in the hospital, then that patient deserves more than blindly throwing exercises at them in hopes that their swallowing might be improved because it might have already been spontaneously improved just from treatment from the hospital and being out of the hospital. Right. So that patient deserves a repeat instrumental assessment. That patient does not deserve to be NPO with a feeding tube that could cause innumerable complications um, just because they were NPO when they got discharged from the hospital. Right. That has to be, that has to be the approach. Right. Because, and I, you do this a lot in your work, but I would guarantee that if we went in and reevaluated every patient in a skilled nursing facility with a feeding tube, I, I don't know, what percentage of them would you think might have a normal swallow? It's disgustingly high, probably 80, 90%. <laughs> and when you're going in and, and you act as a consultant in these, in these uh, facilities, how long have they been in those facilities and how many treatment sessions have they had with the speech pathologist? Well, so I'm going to go off on quite a rant about this one, actually. This is a, an example I'm going to give you. It was maybe a month or two ago and I was at this facility. And the, the speech pathologist was very kind of hesitant about instrumentals anyways, but it had come to a head with the family and the doctor of what she was going to do with this one patient. So I'm in there doing the fees on the, the one patient and he's got a roommate. And the roommate starts talking to me and he's like, oh, what are you doing in here? And, you know, with HIPAA, I'm kind of trying not to say what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm here to talk to this guy. And so he's, he sees me kind of bringing in different textures and I'm putting my green dye in. And he's like, oh, are you doing some kind of swallowing test with him? And, well, I'd love to know what my swallow looked like. And I think I just said something like, oh, well, I'm sure it's beautiful. You know, if you're not on my list, I'm sure it's beautiful. And he said, oh, no, I've had this tube in for months. And since I have this tube in, they, they don't think that my swallow is any good. And I keep telling them that I'm taking drinks of water myself. And I think my swallow is just fine. So I <laughs> tried to kind of tactfully say to the speech pathologist after I was done with the roommate, you know, what's this guy's deal? And she's like, oh, well, he came from the hospital, you know, NPO on a feeding tube. And the report just basically said that he didn't have a, no swallow was seen on the modified. So they pegged him and he's here. And I was like, okay, did you think maybe now that he's here, we should look into it and see if he's improved or had any spontaneous recovery or, and she just really looked at me like a deer in headlights. So <laughs> I was like, if you can get the doctor's order, I think we should really take a look at him, especially he said that he's been brushing his teeth religiously. So he has great oral care. He's been giving himself water because the poor man's been MPO for so long. We did the fees and his swallow was beautiful. So it completely blew the speech pathologist's mind because she, she felt horrible that he'd been NPO and she hadn't done anything with him, but she just thought that that was going to be his, his condition. So. But you know what? That's okay because that's a teaching moment. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping that, that, you know, people listening to this podcast right now are getting it too, you know, and, and you and I are both very active on the, on the Facebook groups and, and people talk about having limited access to fees and modified barium swallows. But this is why we need to advocate and we need to get these for our patients. It's not because, oh, you know, 
if you're in a certain facility that doesn't do them, you're a worse clinician or not. No, it's not about that. It's all about the patient, right? Right, and, right, right. And what you would want for your loved one. And if I could just talk about, you know, nursing home uh, residents with advanced dementia. In, in 2010, the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, they, they looked at um, this population in terms of hospital characteristics associated with feeding tube placement. More than one-third of nursing home patients with advanced dementia had a feeding tube inserted, and two-thirds had their feeding tube inserted during an acute care hospitalization. So, you know, I know a lot of people like to rag on the uh, SNF SLPs, but this uh, statistic is should be enlightening to the acute care SLPs out there. Right. Two-thirds of the nursing home residents who had, a, with advanced dementia, who had a feeding tube inserted, two-thirds of them had their feeding tube inserted during acute care hospitalization. And of those, the study found that um, for-profit ownership, larger hospital size, and greater ICU use were associated with increased rates of feeding tube insertion. So this goes both ways, speech pathologists. Right. The acute care SLPs. <laughs> And the SNFs and long-term care SLPs really do um, play a role in this, you know, but that's just the, it, it emphasizes the importance of follow-up. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I understand that sometimes we might not even get a consult on the acute care side, right? The patients get pegged and get sent out. So, you know, the acute care SLP might not have even seen that patient, which is even why it's so much more important that the SNF SLP knows that and recommends an instrumental assessment right? to get that feeding tube out of there if it's appropriate. I think that's exactly what happened in this particular case because, you know, she said that he just had an absent swallow from the MBS, but then there was no other follow-up, no further treatment while he was in the hospital, and he was still in the hospital for for a few weeks after that. So it, it was just kind of a teaching moment all around for her too. And it really opened her eyes up to, like like we said, following up constantly, but the whole concept of NPO, you know, it's not a death sentence. <laughs> that our, our job is to rehab the swallow. And, and sometimes it's not in our control. I mean, the body does crazy, miraculous things. And with this guy, it may have been completely spontaneous recovery, but he's at least entitled to a follow-up and to an instrumental to see that, no, this isn't a lifelong condition, that he did recover from whatever the heck happened in the hospital that we don't have the full notes on. But And I'm wondering, too, if there's pressure on the speech pathologist in a skilled nursing facility to treat a patient with, you know, presumed dysphagia by giving them exercises, either whether it's pressure from their uh, rehab, their, their director, or pressure that they put on themselves. Oh, I'm a clinician. I'm supposed to rehab the swallow. Well, it's okay if you don't know what you're doing. If you don't have a modified barium swallow, you don't, or a fees, you don't know what you're doing with that right. patient. So it's okay to do an evaluation. Right. And I, and I think I will say, even if you have nothing on an NPO patient, if you have nothing, if you have this guy that has a G-tube and you have absolutely nothing, there's three things that you can do. You can make sure that they're upright and not completely laying flat. Mm-hmm. You can make sure that they're getting good oral care and not just an entire drawer full of the pink swabs, that they're actually getting their teeth brushed and getting the oral care, getting the good oral care, getting all the gunk out of there, and that they are are still getting some ice chips, getting the mouth moving, getting the good bacteria turned over to help with the bad bacteria. So as much as we can debate, is that skilled therapy? No, probably not. But can you be a consultant for that person until we can figure out what's going on? I I think that's kind of where our role is with advocating to nursing too, and not just leaving the poor guy there with a feeding tube and an entire drawer full of pink swabs to quote unquote, not good oral care. We talked about feeding tubes not prolonging life in this population and, you know, not providing nutrition or not where the, the patient doesn't uh, receive all the nutrition from it um, and not preventing aspiration pneumonia, right? So if we, I think we should talk about risks and benefits as, associated with feeding tubes. Sounds good. Right? So, so when, you're, when you're in an acute care position and you're seeing a patient and the, a feeding tube is brought up, sometimes it's brought up by the family member, sometimes it's brought up by the doctor. You know, it's our role to be able to, to speak to these things. So what I like to do is I like to talk, I like to sit down with the, with the patient and or the family member and say, well, what are your goals, right? And if they want to talk about eliminating aspiration, then I'll explain that it doesn't do that. If they want to talk about prolonging life or, um, you know, increasing nutrition, 
then I'll give them the information about that. But then what I also do is talk about the risks associated with inserting a feeding tube. So I have a list that is also from that dysphagia and older adults. And, and this list has probably 30 to 40 burdens or complications associated with feeding tube use, with peg tube use. One of those complications is pneumonia. <laughs> Another one is aspiration. Another one is reflux. Another one is bowel obstruction. Right. Another one is nausea, diarrhea. I can't tell you how many times a patient who's been NPO and gets a feeding tube ends up having severe diarrhea from the formula. So in addition to, so if the feeding tube was placed because the patient had pneumonia because they were aspirating, well, the feeding tube itself increases both of those risks, right? And now you've just created another size infection, <laughs> right? Where uh, there might be an infection at the tube site, there could be potential for dislodgement of the feeding tube, especially if the patient is altered. If they have dementia, they could re self-remove it. They could injure themselves, diarrhea, nausea, malfunction of the tube. So even if they didn't come back with aspiration pneumonia, I don't know what the percentage is, but I bet it's a high percentage of return hospital or ED visits for feeding tube malfunction. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and, I, and I want to back up to where you said that mm -hmm. one of the risks is actually the surgical procedure of inserting the tube. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people consider that. I know there was a big case a few months back. It was, it was pretty, pretty close to home for me. But it was a case with an older man with uh, cerebral palsy, I believe. I might be, might be off on that. But he'd had lifelong chronic dysphagia and the hospital was pushing for him to get a feeding tube. And the sister was advocating because the doctor had said he won't survive the surgery. He has some adverse reaction to anesthesia and he wouldn't survive the surgery of getting the tube placed. Mm -hmm. um, and it was this whole big thing that went into litigation, but it brought up this whole point that people don't realize that the actual insertion of the tube is a surgical procedure in and of itself. It's not just sticking a tube in the skin. It's an actual surgical procedure. Right. Someone could die on the table by getting a feeding tube. Yeah. And I, I kind of make that clear to the patients and their family members that, you know, this is, I don't tell them what they should or shouldn't do. The way that I set it up is I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to provide you with as much information as possible so that you can make an informed decision Absolutely. For, your, for yourself or for your loved one. And at the end of it, I, I will ask if they have any questions and then I'll encourage them to Google it. I want you to Google feeding tube in dementia. Okay. Most people, you know, have access to computers and they're pretty internet savvy nowadays. And, <laughs> and they, and I, I say, you know, you do that and I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to you about any other questions they have because their Google search will confirm everything that you just told them. There are lots of, you know, uh, things written in layman terminology, not just research articles about feeding tubes in dementia from things like the American Geriatric, excuse me, American Geriatric Society and personal accounts of people who, you know, had feeding tubes for the place for their loved ones that regretted it later or New York Times articles about, you know, how doctors want to die. Um, lots of stuff online for them to read. And then I'll follow up with them. And usually that helps to inform them as much as possible. So it's not just you being the one saying or providing the information, but that they're doing their own research as well. One thing I also wanted to mention was that not all feeding tubes are created equal. They're placed in, in different ways. So you, you talked about the surgical procedure. So PEG, a PEG is actually a specific way that the feeding tube is inserted. Um, people will say it like Kleenex for tissue, but a PEG, the E in PEG is endoscopic. So it's a percutaneously, endoscopically placed G-tube um, Whereas there are other ways of placing a tube um, radiographically. Um, some hospitals prefer to do it in interventional radiology. And then there are also open surgical ways to do it. So a PEG not necessarily is not the generic term for it. Also, it could be a J-tube as well, where the tube is placed into the jejunum. And there's also NG-tubes. Correct, or NJ-tube, post-pyloric tube. There you go. Right. So, so we have to be very specific, I think, in... Um, how we're documenting as well. And one thing I also wanted to mention, in addition to not recommending appetite stimulants, but also not saying specifically 
recommend pace because that's how we get in trouble in our profession, right? Right. Our job, our job is to evaluate swallow function, not recommend procedures. And this is a very, you know, when you say recommend peg tube, let's say they do go through with it and have a complication. Well, you recommended it. Right. Right. So we have to think about that. And like I said, peg is a very specific intervention. You know, you can say something like, you know, consider non-oral means of supplemental nutrition or something like that, hopefully not in a case of advanced dementia, but when you are thinking that the patient might need some um, alternate means of nutrition, it's better to say, consider something as opposed to saying, I recommend a peg tube. There's a huge difference in informing the patient and their family versus recommending something. And I think that's where we get ourselves in trouble a lot. We're not, we're not the judge and the jury. You know, we we just do the assessment and we gather all these factors and we have to inform them. And I just, it drives me nuts when SLPs just recommend something. And it's like, well, did you even ask the family? Did you even ask the patient? Did you even ask the doctor? And they didn't really go through all these other steps. So I think that's the informed piece is just the critical piece here is being able to inform the family of the risk benefits as opposed to just recommending what you think is best. Well, and that's a good point to be informed about all of these things. I can give you a recent example of a family friend who never underwent uh, an instrumental assessment in during their acute hospitalization. They were discharged to a SNF. The speech pathologist in the hospital had recommended a pureed thick and liquid diet. The speech pathologist in the skilled nursing facility made the patient sign a waiver or the patient's um, POA signed a waiver saying that if they refused to have that, then, you know, they were putting themselves at risk. But how can you make a patient or POA sign a form that talks about risk when you haven't even confirmed the presence of dysphagia? What about the risk associated with being on a thick and liquid diet, such as increased risk of dehydration, urinary tract infection, lower digestion, uh, feeling fuller, sooner because the esophagus is backed up with thick liquids. So those who are doing waivers in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities, I think I'm just going to say, you know, I'm going to go there. Yeah. (laughs) Because, because you're not weighing the risks and benefits of everything. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything else to say on that, but that's just something that, that comes up a lot. Yeah. No, I have an entire, another podcast all about waivers and how to approach that. So yeah, that's, it's definitely a hot topic, but I'm glad we, we did touch on it. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to, I guess, say in parting words about NPO and feeding tubes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So there's, there's always more to say, right? Yeah. Um, so, so what are the alternatives, right? Or where, um, instead of NPO, perhaps you can work with your facility to create an order that says comfort feeding only. This comes from the Journal of American Geriatrics in 2010, right? So even if the patient is aspirating a little bit of water um, and they, you really think they need to be NPO or, or maybe they're on hospice or palliative care already, comfort feeding only is, is a better choice, I think. Or even if you... Yeah, I like, I like that. I like how that's phrased. Yeah, even if you expect the patient to improve a little bit and they, and they you know, might have some sort of temporary feeding tube, don't put the patient at bigger risk by keeping them NPO. You know, like I said, their oral flora bacteria will, will build up, which increases the risk of developing pneumonia. They won't be swallowing, so, you know, it's that use it or lose it. They'll end up with diffuse atrophy and their chances of recovery... Um, go down. So, so consider that, that aspiration does not equal pneumonia and you really want the patient right. to be comfortable and set them up for success uh, if you can. Another thing to take away is that liquid should probably be as least thick as possible. We know that excessive modification of food and fluids may decrease quality of life and it may impact nutritional status by negatively affecting appetite and oral intake. We talked about UTIs, dehydration, the Robin study in 2008, which showed that, you know, thicker liquids, honey thick liquids led to longer hospital stay. And if you haven't tried a honey thick liquid, you should try it. It's not appetizing. Yeah. Um, keep, keep, if, if you have a patient who's on hospice, don't recommend honey thick liquid unless it's really uncomfortable for them to be, you know, drinking water or thin liquid and aspirating. They're doing a lot of coughing and they just seem more comfortable with something thicker and they don't seem to mind it. But let's keep the liquids as, as 
least thick as possible. Yeah. And also hand feeding as an alternative to uh, feeding tube placement. And that's something that, that you can look up articles about and get more information on that. What was that? So, what was that last one? Hand feeding. Hand feeding. Okay. Hand feeding as an alternative to feeding tube. Gotcha. Sorry, that's my Philadelphia accent. That's okay. Hand. hand. Okay, got it. <laughs> hand. <laughs> so I guess overall, I just want to say that in terms of lessons learned here, we can help identify and refer patients to palliative care or hospice sooner, you know, if it's a if it's a dysphagia issue. I'd say get ready to have a difficult conversation with the patient, with their family, with the medical team. Um, you know, be informed, do research. There's lots of it. You know, ASHA has a lot of uh, articles and information about this. Um, you know, know that we can't always be the fix-it profession. We... In these cases, we have to facilitate, not strengthen or rehab patients. We have to understand the complex dynamics of a progressive terminal illness and make sure that we can speak to the different options that are available. Collaborate with your team, with your you know, speech pathologists, with the doctors, with the dietitians. Make sure that you guys are all on the same page because you don't want to, make, you don't want to say one thing when the doctor is saying another. Um, I, I recommend meeting uh, with patients and their families together as opposed to separately. Set up a time, you know, be, be the, uh, you know, the one to, to lead this effort for the patient. Um, say, say to the doctors, hey, can we meet with the patient together so that we can have an open discussion and come to, you know, a, an appropriate uh, solution. Yeah. And lastly, don't forget about the patient, right? It's, it's not all about the swallowing, you know, look away from the fluoro, look away from the fees, talk to the patient, think about the patient's wishes, get to know the patient through their family member if you can, you know, what, what would the patient want? Don't leave the patient out of the equation. Absolutely. I think those are always like my most favorite Facebook posts. It's like, well, I have this patient and I don't know what to do. And then someone chimes in, they're like, well, I would do this. And someone else chimes in and I would do that. And then someone always chimes in and says, well, what does the patient want? Mm-hmm. And it's like just the light bulb went off in their head like, oh, shit, I didn't even think of that. Exactly. So, yeah, have to go back to our patients. So, all right. I'm going to throw a final question at you, Dan. You're probably totally unprepared for this. So, okay. And it doesn't have to be NPO related, just anything dysphagia related. But if there's right. one study, paper, treatment strategy, one golden nugget that you've learned in your entire practice that's kind of helped to shape your practice or was a game changer for you, what do you think it would be? I'm going to give a shout out to Julie Huffman, who is at Rex in North Carolina, who does a great course on esophageal dysphagia for the speech language pathologist. I thought it was a great course. Everyone I attended the course with also thought it was so full of practical information on our role in assessing the esophagus um, using all means available. And I think it really prepared me for working in a larger academic institution if you have the opportunity to attend this course, I definitely would. I, I found it to be really eye-opening um, and engaging. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Super appreciate it. Can't wait for next week. What's next week? Are we doing this again? <laughs> next week's podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.